Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We're so glad you're here. Uh, we are in a series here, Tale of Three Kings. Now, if you missed any of these weeks, what we're going through is uh, for the books of First and Second Samuel, looking at these three kings uh, that served as uh, God's spokesmen or God's leaders for the ancient nation of Israel and how God was choosing to, to work through these men to bring about his purposes. But what we're really looking at is uh, the character of these men because God had appointed each one of them uh, to, to do great things. And yet um, somewhere along the line, there was something internally that either uh, propelled them to the greatness God had for them or became uh, a ceiling or the, a limiting factor on what God was uh, able to do through them because of uh, their character. And so we looked heavily at Saul these last uh, two weeks just really looking at where God had put it on him. He had given him externally the greatness that people uh, expect, right? Like when you think of sports and you think of greatness, you think of dominance, right? You think Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, right? When you think of business uh, greatness, you think of uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and just these guys who have propelled themselves up. And that may be true in the world, and God actually doesn't discourage us from being great in the world. He encourages us to be people of influence, but there's something in the kingdom of God that when we desire to love and follow God, there's a different level of greatness, and it's one that's really dependent on the inner character of who we are. What is in our hearts? What do we think? What do we feel? What do we believe in? What is true of us? And what we saw of Saul Saul these last couple weeks was that he really lacked the character necessary to be great in the kingdom of God. And there was four things in particular that he exhibited uh, that got in the way. One was partial obedience. He just said, you know what? I get to obey when I want to obey and I'll disobey when I feel like it. Whenever it's convenient for me to obey, I will obey. That, That was his one flaw. The second one was that he wasn't taking personal responsibility. As a leader, he was willing to throw his people under the bus rather than saying, nope, this one's on me. I have to own this. He lived in this just deep fear of man, always asking the question, what do people think of me, not what does God think of me, Uh, which you'll see a huge contrast in our our narrative that we're going to read today. And then ultimately, jealousy. Uh, It became uh, just this cancer in his bones, as scripture would put it, that ultimately eroded his relationships and turned uh, an ally David into one of his enemies. And so uh, as we look at the negative sides of his character, what I want to look at today is actually the the positive side of King David's character or soon to be King David's character, because uh, you don't even have to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus. And you probably know the story of David and Goliath. Right? There is a greatness about that man. You, you probably didn't know this, but he, he's actually the writer of some of the most famous songs ever in the Psalms and the most reproduced songs ever. He goes down as one of the greatest kings ever, not just in Jewish history, but in all of history for what he's done. How in the world did David become so great? When it really, if you look at his pathway, it was not pretty. It wasn't yellow brick road, Harvard Law School, get a business degree, uh, get the right set of jobs. It was terrible. It was a terrible, terrible road to greatness for him. It was full of attempted murder and, and treachery and being backstabbed and being sent on the run like a dog. But what is true, if you look at the overarching theme of his life, and you see this especially if you read the Psalms, is that there was this deep-rooted trust that David had in the character of God. And I would, I would go as far as to say this morning that the greatness in David's life came from trusting God. If we want to attain to the greatness that God would have for us, it has to be because uh, I don't trust myself enough because I'm not strong enough, I'm not capable enough, but I serve a God who is. And then if we are people who are dependent on our own capabilities and our own strength and our own willpower, we will never reach the greatness God has for us. 
Because the greatness God has for us is when we are so dependent on him that he shows up and his name is glorified, not our name. That was David's story. Over and over and over again, his life was propelled forward because he was committed to God's glory, not his own. If you've missed the story up until now, I'd encourage you to check it out on the podcast. I want to kind of bring you up to speed and where we are before we pick up the narrative here this morning. Uh, so at this point, David or Saul has been brought up as king, rejected God, disobeyed God. God has said, okay, you're not my king anymore. Um, I've removed my spirit from you, but he's still remaining in power. Now, he becomes undone. He becomes super jealous of David, and he tries to kill David uh, multiple times. He throws several spears at him, as we looked at last week. He dodged the first two spears, uh, came back for the second, but it was finally the third spear, the third time Saul tried to kill him, that he said, I'm out of here. He wants me dead. I'm going to go on the run. So he runs back to his home. He goes into his, his uh, house, and his wife is there, who's Saul's daughter. He's, mar- he's married Saul's daughter, and she says, my father's trying to kill you. She lowers him out the window, and he goes on the run. Now, you think you have bad in-laws, okay? I don't know when the last time... Your, your wife had to bail you out the window so your in-laws didn't throw a spear in your head. But this was, this was David's life. So he goes on the run like a, like a dog being chased, as he uses his own words to say that. He goes from town to town to town trying to escape and hide from Saul. Well, at one point, he ends up in this city uh, called Nob. And while he's there, he goes to this priest and says, hey, I'm really hungry. I need some bread. So the priest gives him some bread, which really he wasn't supposed to give him that type of bread, but that's a whole other story. Uh, and then he says, I need a weapon. Can I need to defend myself? And uh, oddly enough, Goliath, the giant he defeated, his sword is sitting there. So the priest gives him uh, Goliath's sword, and David goes on the run with some bread and uh, this sword. Well, Saul finds out that David was in this town and that this priest helped him. So Saul comes and basically says, uh, hey, you helped David, and he's my enemy. And, and the priest was like, I, I didn't know he's your enemy. He just asked for some food. What's the big deal? And uh, basically they said, well, this is it. So Saul orders the execution of the priest and all of uh, the other, all the 85 other priests. Well, his men refused to do it because they knew it was wrong. So he got a foreigner to come in and basically murders the 85 priests, and that's not enough. So he goes into the town where the priest came from and murdered the entire town, men, women, children, and animals, which is really, one, terrible, but two, it's a little bit ironic if you consider the first week When God said, I'm going to bring about judgment on the Amalekites for their sin, and he said, no, 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 I won't do that. I would never do such a thing. But man, he'll slaughter an entire village because his ego got hurt. What a warped man. So he has completely lost it at this point, committing genocide. And David feels terrible when he hears about this, but basically he just goes, runs, and he hides. But what's really interesting, and you need to see this, is is who he begins to gather around him. 1 Samuel 22 verse 2 says, All those who were in distress or debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So uh, what's interesting about David is that he's on the run. He's been attempted murder now three times. Uh, An entire village was slaughtered to try to get him. And yet there is something magnetic about his personality. Hiding. Like, who wants to go run and be friends with a guy that the entire government's trying to murder, right? Like, that's essentially what's taking place here. And he draws this really rough crowd. If you read this list, it, it's kind of similar to the crowd Jesus drew to himself, isn't it? The down and outers, the downtrodden. Well, he ends up getting incredible loyalty with these men, and they kind of become his army, if you will. 
And uh, what I want to read is chapters 23 and 24, and you're going to see uh, a couple key things because as we talk about trust, right, trusting God, following God, believing God, like it can feel so nebulous about what it means to trust God more. But what I think is you see in these next two chapters are two incredibly important pieces that if we want to trust and follow God, that these are stepping stones or these are what it looks like in our life uh, to exhibit them. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 23. As you can follow along here. Chapter 23, verse 1. When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Kaliah and are looking and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kaliah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kaliah against the Philistine forces? What's happening here, if, if you don't understand the geography of this, is um, David's in the south in Judah. So he's far away from Saul, who is in Jerusalem. He's trying to get away from him, so he's hiding from him. Kaliah is only 20 miles away from Jerusalem. So basically, not even here to, about here to Binghamton away, essentially, is Kaliah. So he hears that, that Kaliah is under attack. And I'm sure, just like you know people in Binghamton, he knew people in Kaliah and thought, man, I've got to do something to help these people. So he feels this burden. He goes to the Lord and says, God, should I do this? God says, yes, go defend uh, the defenseless. Well, then he turns around and his men are like, nuh-uh, we're not going out there. Are you crazy? You want us to go closer to the guy that's trying to murder all of us? Because Saul just didn't want David dead. He wanted everybody associated with David dead. So when David asks his men to go, he's saying, run towards uh, potential suicide, and you probably don't have the weapons you need but let's go fight the Philistines. What makes this even worse is that this was Saul's responsibility. Saul was supposed to be defending Kaliah. Saul was supposed to be protecting the people from their enemy. But instead, he's too preoccupied hunting David that now David has to do the job for the man who's trying to murder him. What's interesting, though, is these men just say, we don't want to do it. <laughs> you kidding, David? We're us. We're hiding. We're in self-preservation mode. We're just trying to survive. Maybe a feeling you might feel from time to time. God, you put me in this difficult situation. It's hard enough. And now you're asking me to go care about other people? Oh, and put my, li my life on the line for other people? I'm barely making it as it is. Now, 400 men stand opposed to David going to do what he knows is right. There's about 375 people who attend, on average, on a Sunday morning here. If all 375 of you stood up at once and said, Matt, we think you're an idiot. This is the wrong decision. We're not following you. You know what I would do? You're right. I am. I'm an idiot. I'm going to go home. I'm going to grab some lunch, take a nap, and I'll reconsider my, my, my stance on this, right? Like 400 grown men saying, no, David, we're not going to do this. But he shows great leadership, and what does he do? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. Go down to Kaliah, for I am going to give you the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Kaliah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kaliah. He does something incredibly important, and in that he takes what is likely his own fear. He takes the fear of his men. He says, I see them for what they are. Let me hand them back to God. God, you see the circumstances. You see how difficult this is. And you know what God doesn't do? Oh, David, you're so right. I didn't see how dangerous this was for you. I'm so sorry. I should have never asked you to go in the first place. No. He says, get up. I've already provided the victory for you. 
and go defend the defenseless. See, what you see of true, that is true of David's character uh, and that is true if we want to trust God is that we must choose courage over fear. You see, trusting God says, I, I know this circumstance seems impossible. I know this might even be dangerous. I know this certainly is not uh, potentially in my best interest if my best interest is self-preservation uh, and, and comfort. Certainly following God is a risk to that. But, but here you see him, you know what? Despite my fear, I'll choose to obey God regardless of what it costs me. Now, there's a couple things that have to be true of God if you're going to trust him. One, he has to be powerful enough to do something with your problems. Right? If God is not all-powerful, then he cannot do anything with the problems of evil that we face in this life. So this kind of like super soft, always kind, never says anything hard, overly benevolent Jesus, he's not helpful. Why? Because sin is destructive and it is out to kill us. And so we need a God who can actually be strong enough to do something about the pain we feel. But beyond his strength, we also have to trust that he's good. Because if he's not good, I, I can't trust that when I surrender or give him over the authority to make a decision in my life, that he's actually going to make the right decision. And so as you consider your perspective on God, do you firmly believe that he is both powerful enough to solve your problems and good enough to do the right thing with them? Because if he is powerful but it is not good, he cannot be trusted. If he is not powerful but he is good, he cannot be trusted because he has no power to do anything. It is only because David was confident the fact that God was going to do the right thing by him and he was powerful enough to actually bring the victory that he promised. Was he willing to follow him? As you consider your life and the things that are in front of you, are you sitting in that truth of God's character? That he actually does have the power to solve your problems? Or are you sitting there like David's men going, oh, I just, don't, I just don't think God's in this one. I just don't think he's big enough. I think we should probably do what we think is best. And instead of doing what God thinks is best. Or are you in a position where we're really, even if God could, you're not sure he would really move on your behalf? So your life will begin to be marked by fear. My life will begin to be marked by fear when I see my abilities as the deciding factor in whether I obey or not, not on God's character being the deciding factor in whether I obey or not. See, I think as we, we face difficulties in life, there's a perspective we can choose to have on them that, that isn't always helpful. Right? Like, like, how did you get David to the point of trusting God? Because um, I, I look at troubles and trials and think, ah, what's God doing? But if you really consider David's life, how he got to the point of trusting God like he does here is because it was one difficult trial after another where he chose to put his faith in God. Now, they didn't all start as Goliath. In fact, if you read the story, 1 Samuel 17, he, he says, um, because I was a shepherd boy, and I was a teenager, and my, my parents sent me out to the field to take care of the sheep. And one day, he's sitting there watching the sheep, and this lion comes up to take the sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're 15 taking care of some sheep, and a lion comes wandering over, like the first thought on my head is going to be, they're just sheep. We can buy more. Like, <laughs> I'm going to hide over here. I'm going to watch what happens, right? Like, that, that could have been 
Uh, and maybe even the first couple times he lost a few sheep, but finally he works up the courage to go defeat the lion, not with uh, a rifle and not even with slings and arrows, with his hands and clubs, basically. He defeats this lion as a 15-year-old boy. Now, so I had some teenagers in here who thought they were pretty tough. None of them wanted to fight uh, a lion, okay? But then he defeats the lion. Well, then comes the bear. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe this is weird. I think I'd rather fight a lion than fight a bear. Like, if I had my choice, I think the bear... Just probably a little bit tougher, a little denser skull. I feel like the lion's a little lazy. If he, right? I think I can win that one more readily. Uh, I'm probably going to lose both of them, and you're going to have to send me to the ER. But he goes and he fights the bear. Well, then he defeats the bear with his bare hands. And when he stands before Goliath in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, what does he say? He said, God is going to make you just like that bear and just like that lion. You see, the problems grew in human perspective, but for David, he knew that God was still bigger. And so when he looked at God was faithful in the lion, he was faithful in the bear, he's going to be faithful as I take down Goliath, he was faithful when he won victories for God's army. So when he looks at saving Goliath, he goes, God's done this before. He doesn't say, I've done this before, God's done this before. He said, God will be the one who does that. Now that's one way to look at the trials you face in your life would be this, that the current trial you might be in right now might be preparing you for the next victory. You see, God might have you in front of a bear or a lion or a giant, and you can look at this from the woe is me perspective. Really, God, you're going to send me another bear? You're going to send me another trial? I was just trying to follow you, and you sent this difficulty after me? God, I was trying so hard. Why? Why? And then we begin to lose sight of what God might be doing. See, if it wasn't for the bear and it wasn't for the lion, if it wasn't for Goliath, David would never have been who God had called him to be. And in fact, it was the trials and the difficulties that shaped the very character of who David needed to be in order for God to use him in a way he needed to use him. He didn't need David to have the perfect path. He needed David to have a pathway where he was forced to trust God. As you consider the difficulties in your own life, whatever you're facing, whatever it might be, sometimes it feels like God's picking on you, doesn't it? Like, God, were you bored? Anybody else you want to make their life hard? Here's what I want you to consider. He's not picking on you. He picked you. He chose you. He called you. He rescued you from sin and darkness. Not so that you could sit in self-preservation mode and comfort until you reached eternity. He picked you so that you might be a light post in a dark world that is continually trying to snuff out the light of Jesus. He has picked you to stand in broken environments and declare that there is hope. He has picked you to sit across from somebody struggling with their faith, struggling with their walk, struggling to hang on to life in general. He has picked you to be the greatness in somebody's life that they might look at you see the Father in heaven. That they might look at the way you have walked through your trials and your mess and go, man, they have a whole ton of courage. I'd be so terrified to do that. Tell me why you're courageous. Tell me why you have hope. See, he's picked you. And so often we waste the trials that God is trying to create something in us necessary for the next season he wants to take us. And some of us feel so trapped in the season we've been in right now, and it's because you're not seeing that God is using the season to develop you. You think he's using it to destroy you, and it's just not true. He has great things for you. 
And what you find interesting, what I find interesting in the story is David goes, he's courageous. He goes and he defeats Kaliah, or defeats the Philistines who are attacking Kaliah, but he's not a hothead. Like, he's not a crusader. He's not like, rah, rah, rah. Like, I, I think we can miss some of that at times. What happens next is incredibly important, is that he leans back in, he says, God, okay, now what? Well, you know what happens next? God says, run. <laughs> run for your life. So at one point, as you read the story, David's running along this side of the mountain pass. Saul's running along this side to try to kill him. And the Philistines come and attack uh, a city. And so Saul has to run away and defend them. So David, at this point, just runs and hides with all of his men. He goes and he runs into a cave. And that's where we're going to pick the story up in chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord has spoken of when he said to you, I will give Excuse me. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So here's, here's the moment. 401 men uh, being chased by 3,000. The 401 men are hiding in the back of the cave, and they look out and they see the silhouette of the man who has committed mass genocide of a city to get them, the man who has been chasing them, the man who has put death threats on their life. He's at the front of the cave with some Charmin Ultra in his hand in a really compromised position, all right? <laughs> That's what's happening in the story. And then in the back of his ear, there's his men going, David, this is the moment. This is the time that they get really spiritual about it. God has anointed this moment for you to finally get revenge. This is it, David. Now, in the same way that I said, if all, all 375 of you told me no, I'd have a hard time saying yes. He's got 400 men who, who really are saying, David, would you do the world a favor and stop this murderer? because he's trying to kill us too. So could you just, for the greater good, help us all out here? I mean, really, I think God would be okay with this because it might even be justified at this point. What does David do? Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, and lay my hands on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Saul left the cave and went on his way. He sneaks up, cuts a corner of his robe off, basically to say, I could have killed you if I wanted to. But why didn't David kill him? He didn't kill him because he refused to be like Saul. He, he refused to take matters into his own hands. You remember in the, the beginning uh, week where Brett was talking about there was a bunch of people coming up against Saul and Saul's men were basically kind of pressuring him to do something and he caved and it was the wrong decision and then he blamed his men. What a contrast to David right here. David's men are literally saying, do it. And he says, no, I refuse to be like that man. I will be a different man. And in fact, sit down and shut up. Get behind me. I don't want to hear from you. It, that's hard. It was incredibly unpopular. But I think it reveals the second thing about what is true of David's character, and it is this, that he chose mercy over judgment. Trusting God means that in positions of difficulties, in positions where you feel like it's your right 
And you might even be right, but to choose the position of mercy. See, revenge is easy. Everybody can get even. The world is great. It's super popular to get revenge. What is incredibly unpopular is to follow the way of Jesus and choose mercy. Now, you can only do that if you believe God's a better judge than you are. You can only sit in this position of allowing God to deal with it if you believe he is powerful enough to do it and good enough to do the right thing. Which is why we so often struggle, let's be honest, we struggle to release people, to forgive people. We struggle to let go because we think we make a better judge. We think we have the right answer for what is best for their life. But I want you to read uh, this what David then says to Saul as it reveals something incredibly important for us. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Which, let us pause right there. You know how hard that would be? <laughs> the man who's trying to kill you, hunt you, murder you, that you recognize that God has put something on his life, that even at this point you're going to humble yourself enough to bow down before him? Listen, some of us have a hard time listening to our boss because we think he's a jerk. It's this incredible mark of humility on David's life. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into, the hands, into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And this is the important piece for us. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers comes evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your do you see the position David has decided to put himself in? He has decided to take himself off of the seat of judgment to say, I, I'm not going to be like you, Saul. I'm going to be different than you. And that difference means being merciful. That difference means trusting the fact that God is going to deal with you much better than I could ever deal with you. That I don't have to fight for my own rights. God will fight for me. I might be hiding in a cave. That's okay. I'd rather be hiding in a cave with nothing than be like you, is really what he says. So may God be the one who finally vindicates me. As you consider this story and you consider your own story, I'm sure it wouldn't be a leap uh, to imagine some people who have made your life difficult, some people who have hurt you or wounded you or perhaps a, a nemesis of some sort. What would it look like to choose the posture of, of David? I said, I won't, be, I won't sit in this judgment seat. This isn't mine to sit in. And what's interesting is that um, mercy can look really weak. 
Like it just looks like you're passive, like you're unwilling to deal with it. Do you know how much courage it took for David to be merciful here? He's got to hold back 400 men. A bold move. He's got to hold back his own inner desire to take things into his own hand. That is not for a weak man. That is for a courageous man to say, God is better at this than I. And you know what's really interesting is he, he could have. He could have taken matters into his own hand. And in fact, most of the country probably would have rejoiced. They probably would have thanked David for finally ridding him of this man. But that's not what mattered to David. What mattered to David is what God thought of his heart, what God thought of his actions. He didn't care if it would be justified by the people around him. It would not be justified before God, and he knew that. That's ultimately what drove David to greatness, was that through all the trials and all the difficulties, what mattered most to him is what God thought of him. As you consider your trials and your difficulties, I want you to consider this. We have to be careful to not allow difficulties to determine God's goodness in our life. We can't look out at the world around us, see the trials, and determine whether God is good or not from that. The reality is God is good, but life is broken and it hurts. Rather, we need to see difficulties as an opportunity to discover God's goodness. That moment in the cave was pivotal for David's future and how he led. Because in that moment, what he decided was, in this circumstance, I choose to walk in the way of God. I choose to see this opportunity to discover a piece of God's heart that is so often missed, and and that's mercy. As you consider the things you're afraid of this morning, and the difficulties of whatever it is that you're facing, can I I just pause real quick and, and talk to believers in the room? Um, I, I am continually in perpetual, I'm not saying it's coming from any of you, I'm just, I'm continually hearing over and over um, this just fear-driven speech about the government, about the decisions, about politicians, about the future of our, our country. And, and listen, I got five little ones living in my home. I, I, I'm concerned about these things too, right? Like it's not, I don't think I'm living in this vacuum. But, but can I just say with loving pastoral heart that the doomsday, life is terrible, it's awful speech, it's got to stop. Listen, what kind of God do we serve? Do we serve a God who's bound by the systems of the United States government? (laughs) Do we serve a God who is beneath any of these leaders? No, we just watched God uh, direct and and, um, give direction to a man who's committing mass genocide. He is in control. And can I tell you that he is in control today? that our speech doesn't have to be one of fear, but it can be one of courage, that God hasn't called us to to just recluse and go into self-comfort and self-preservation as a church, that that is not the calling on us. The calling on us is to be people of courage in a place of great fear, to be people who step into dangerous environments, who do things that put our own life on the line to help other people find Jesus. That is the call of Christianity. It is the call of our Savior. He left heaven to rescue us. We're called to walk across the street to rescue our neighbors, to walk into schools, to rescue friends, to, to walk into work environments, not retreat. Retreat's for losing. The reason he gave us revelation wasn't so that we could be fearful of the end, it's so that we could know we win in Jesus, that he has already provided the victory. There's nothing we can do but win if we walk in Jesus. If you're here and you're wrestling with fear, I'd encourage you to sit on 
Isaiah chapter 41. It says, so do not fear. It doesn't say, well, if your circumstances are bad enough, so do not fear for what I am with you. He is good. He is present. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He is both with you. He sees. He knows what you're going through and he possesses the power to do something about it and he has the good enough character to bring about the right result. Can I just express to you the freedom that will bring into your life? The deliverance that will bring you from the things that ache in your mind because your God has already gone before you. He has already provided the victory for you. As a way of reminding yourself of this this week, I want to encourage you to write these down. Just just begin to name your fears. I have been fearful of whatever it is. Something with your kids something in your environment. I I don't know what it is. What is it? Name it. And then compare it to your God, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of the universe, the one who is, the one who always will be, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God. Where does it rank? Then begin to put some things in your life. Maybe you've been fearful of what's coming at us in the news. To, To trust God this week is to turn off the news and to get in your Bible and to begin to believe what God's promises are in there for you. Maybe for you, the takeaway from this isn't necessarily uh, fear, but it is this idea of mercy over judgment. Maybe you've been sitting in the seat of judgment over somebody's life, and as you've looked around, maybe it's your friends or your family member, and and you've just been kind of condemning, uh, you've been wanting to bring about the justice, the revenge, um, you're withholding forgiveness for whatever it might be, read these words of James with me this morning. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Can I tell you how much this passage terrifies me? (laughs) My natural bent is to sit in the seat of judgment. My natural bent is because I think black and white is to see right uh, from wrong and just to see it clearly. At least that's how I, in my self-righteousness, probably justify it in my head. But I don't want a life judged. (laughs) I'm desperate for mercy. I need it greatly. And what James is saying is the same way you need it, can we be people who show it? Can we be different than this culture of revenge? And in fact, Jesus calls us to this very clearly in Matthew chapter 7. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think what marked David's life was a great deal of mercy for a guy who didn't have it all together. A great deal of forgiveness for a guy who really screwed it up, as we're going to see in, in next week. But what was true of his life is that God's mercy was continually on him. I think, in part, because he chose to be a person of mercy. As you consider your relationships, I want you to write this down as well. If it wasn't fear for you, maybe it's this one. I've been judging... Boom. I want you to write down the name. I want you to just acknowledge it. And I need to show mercy by. Is that by sending a text, by having a conversation, by apologizing, by forgiving. And here's why we hate mercy. I'm just going to say it for us. We hate mercy because we feel like they're going to get away with it. We feel like they wronged us, they deserve to pay, and they're going to get away with it. And that's not mercy. That's passivity. Mercy is what David said. (laughs) I'm just not going to be the one to judge you. (laughs) 
God will do that. God will take care of you. And he's going to do a better job at it than me. Does that mean we don't confront in sin? No, absolutely it means we confront. It would be unmerciful of us to not confront in sin. But it means when we confront, we don't confront to judge you. We confront so that you might find mercy, so that you might find forgiveness. Because here's the, here's the real thing. You got away with it, and I got away with it. The wrongs we committed, the evil we did, the people we hurt, glory be to God. He judged Jesus instead of me. And so Jesus took the judgment that I deserved so that then I could get mercy. And so if there's somebody in my life I'm unwilling to show mercy to, it's just because I have forgotten the mercy God has shown me that I didn't deserve, that I didn't earn. But man, am I so glad I got it. Let's pray. Jimmy, Father, we come before you. And as we sang earlier, though our sins are many, your mercy is more. God, we thank you that not only do you see our life, do you know our hearts, that when you looked in on our mess, that we are probably more like Saul, or at least I am more like Saul than I am like David. And yet you chose to show mercy and forgiveness and bring about reconciliation. God, I thank you for that. If you're here today and you have never understood the forgiveness or mercy that God wants to give to you, that you might live a life free from the sin that has chased you, we would love to have a conversation with you about it. God, I pray that as a people, pray that as followers of you, we would be the most courageous, fearless individuals that anybody ever comes in contact with. I pray that we would be the most merciful, kind, and forgiving people. But God, we can't do it without you because the world is scary and we are weak but you are big, and in you we can be confident. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.